Last week I spoke on the topic of Christian leadership and I titled the message Leadership in Christ. Today I'm going to continue in that spirit to talk about leadership. But today the topic will be that of stewardship in Christ. And I believe there's a, a tremendous relationship between servanthood and stewardship. You cannot be a good servant of God unless you understand how to be steward of all the resources and the calling that God has granted unto you. Let me just give you a little background to the text that we're about to read in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. In chapter 2, Paul had talked about the wisdom and spiritual discernment that we can inherit in Christ. Uh, He says that all things are given to us by revelation, by the Spirit of God, by the inspiration of the Spirit of God. As a matter of fact, Paul says that we are spiritual human beings, spiritual men and women having the very mind of Christ. It's a very high view of a human being. It's a tremendous view of a Christian, someone in Christ. But then in chapter 3, Paul now starts reprimanding the Corinthians for their lack of such wisdom and spiritual discernment. He says that the Corinthians are fleshly and worldly. That is, they are just self-focused. Instead of thinking about God and the desire and the will of God, they're thinking about themselves. He says that they are immature and they are operating as mere humans. Now, some of you might say, what's wrong with that? We are mere humans. But that's not what he's talking about. He's saying that as human beings, you're not just merely flesh. You also are spiritual beings. So there's something glorious, something dignified about you. And you haven't come to realize that. And he points out these things like jealousy, quarreling, lack of unity, infighting, and strife. And that was attributed to their idolatry of their leaders. It was this party spirit they had. I'm for Paul, I'm for Apollos, I'm for Peter, I'm for Jesus Christ. But you know that people who just talk like that are only siding with certain type of ideology or certain type of belief or concept. We are all disciples of Jesus Christ. Whether we have been mentored by Paul or Barnabas or Apollos or Peter or any of the original 12 apostles. And so Paul addresses this issue of leadership. What is leadership all about? And why it is wrong to consider their leaders as some kind of idols. Paul says that Christian leadership is all about servanthood. And as fellow servants, he and Apollos and others, their job is to lay down the foundation that is common to all. And that is none other than Jesus Christ. There are those in the body of Christ who say, I'm a servant of Christ and I'm establishing some other foundation. And they talk about things in a glorious way. Like some people say, we have a special prophetic foundation for the 21st century. Or some new apostolic vision that God has given us. And 
And they make it sound like, you know, they're the coming of age ministers of the gospel. And rest of the others, what about them? Rest of the other denominations. But Paul says, no matter how brilliant his gospel is, no matter how elite his spirituality is, he says he's part of the team that establishes the foundation of Jesus Christ, purely on Jesus Christ. It's not even about eschatology. It's not about some great vision that is global. It is not something, especially for 21st century. He says all throughout 2,000 years, well, he wasn't talking about 2,000, but he foresaw that all throughout 2,000 years and the millennia to come, we must establish the foundation on Jesus Christ. And as individual servants, we are all given certain assignments, and if we are faithful to that, then we will receive just reward from the Lord. And the most important thing that he points out is this, that the church that we are helping to build, the kingdom that we are helping to establish, is sacred before God. It belongs to God. It doesn't belong to Paul. It doesn't belong to Apollos. It doesn't belong to any, any servant of God. It bears the name of Jesus. It belongs to Christ, and it belongs to God. And so as leaders, we have learned last Sunday, and as servant leaders, we must relinquish all our ownership. That's what a servant is. I serve the master. Everything belongs to the master. I relinquish everything to you. Our studio vision here, Rhea International, my work at school, our global vision, our allegiance to certain church or denomination, we surrender all of them to you. And perhaps even our allegiance to certain mentor, certain pastor, certain prophet, certain figurehead, we must relinquish that as well. I have a great appreciation for the historical figures like John Calvin, Martin Luther, and no matter how much I admire them, I must relinquish them as well. And Jesus must be highlighted more than anyone else. So in that context, I want to talk about stewardship. And regarding stewardship, I have three words to say to you. Let me just give you the outlines first, and then I'm going to expound portion by portion from the text. First, stewardship has to do with faithfulness to a divine assignment. What God has granted unto us, what God has entrusted into our hands, we must be found faithful. That's what stewardship means, being faithful. Second, stewardship has to do with showing gratitude for indebted grace because there's nothing that we have received is of our own. We have received as gifts from God. We have received gifts through impartation of others. We have sat under the teachers, pastors, spiritual fathers and mothers, those who prayed for us, our physical fathers and mothers who raised us up. We are completely indebted to all these people. So we could only show gratitude. There's no room for boasting or arrogance and thanklessness. And thirdly, stewardship has to do with humility. Even at the highest level, the apostolic authority, Apostle Paul, 
He says, the real sign of my authority, my greatest credential is that of humility. And so if you keep those three ideas and concepts in mind, I think you will really understand what stewardship is about. So let's begin with verse 1, all the way to verse 5. Let's read this out loud together. This then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. In verse 1, Paul says, This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ. He uses a different word here for servant. Last week, we learned that the servant, the Greek term for servant, is diakonoi. Here, he uses a different word. It is huperetas. Okay? But it's the same idea. It is translated as either attendants or servants. That is, you are attentive, you focus upon your master, and you're doing the master's bidding. But then he uses another term. And as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Those entrusted. That's the word oikonomoi. Oikonomoi. And that's the word for stewards. Stewards. Here, oikonomoi, you might be a little bit familiar with Greek, some of you now. That's where we get the word oikos. It's like house management. And so a steward is someone who is entrusted with the house of the master. And he says, take care of it. Like Joseph in the house of Potiphar, he was a steward. A servant, but he was a steward. And what is the thing about the steward? What is the key word that would define steward? Well, Paul does an excellent job in verse 2. He says, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. One word, faithfulness. You're entrusted with something by your master. Are you faithful? Faithful whether the master is watching you, monitoring you, or not. Behind the scene, are you faithful? Because the master we're talking about is none other than Jesus Christ. And he does all things by the Holy Spirit, so he is watching us. But sometimes we think that even as servants of God, we can kind of get away with it. As long as other people who are significant, like the pastors and elders and the leaders, and of course the common people don't know, but nothing escapes the eyes of the Lord. The Lord is watching us. So the question is, am I being faithful before the sight of the Lord? And then he says something amazing in verse 3.8. Indeed, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. What is he talking about? I don't believe in accountability. I can do whatever. You can't touch me because I'm God's man. I don't think that's what he's saying. He's saying basically that human beings, the way they judge others, judge even the servants of God, are tainted by their biases and prejudices. 
And so they can't be accurate in, in making the judgment about a servant of God, a steward of Christ. And so he says, I'm not in this game. I'm not exhausting myself trying to please you guys, trying to get your approval. As a matter of fact, in verse 3b, he says, I do not even judge myself. I don't even go looking at myself and say, have I qualified myself? How do people think about me? He says in verse 4a, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. He believes that he is really being a good servant, good and faithful steward. He's basically saying, I am righteous, but that does not make me innocent. I love that about Paul. You know, he's not being sloppy. He's not being just licentious. He's not being loose and then trying to make excuses to cover up. He's saying, I try to really live this righteous life. I might be more righteous than you. As a Pharisee, I was a Pharisee among Pharisees. I was notorious as a man of righteousness. And in Christ, I'm living that kind of life. But I don't care about my judgment to myself. Even if I think I am on the right track, that doesn't mean I'm innocent. Who's going to be the judge of that? In verse 4b, it is the Lord who judges me. It is the Lord who judges me. Are we as servants? Are we as stewards? Are we operating as though it is going to be the Lord who will judge us? Whose eyes are you trying to please? Whose commendation are you trying to receive? Is it the Lord? Or some other human figure? Is it the Lord or your own self accreditation? My name is Daniel. Do you know what Daniel means? Daniel, so L is God. And long ago I found out that uh, my name meant God is my judge. And at first I was a little disturbed about that. What? I wish that you know, there would be something much more glorious than the fact that God is my judge. But I began to embrace that because my mom gave me that name. At first I, I was wondering whether she got it right, but in many senses, I can identify with the figure of Daniel in the Bible. But that meaning was so meaningful to me. God is my judge. You know what that means? No matter what people may think, they might be disdainful of me, look down upon me. And recently, I've been getting a little bit because I'm getting older and I'm heading towards my retirement. People look down on people who are old. In their 60s, they, they feel like now you need to go out to the pasture and eat the grass off of the land and uh, we have no more use for you. I feel that way. Then again, I have to remind myself, who is my judge? You're not, you're not my judge. As little Anna used to say, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> no little people can make that kind of judgment. Nobody can be the boss of me and the judge of me. God is the judge of me. And that sets me free because the ultimate accountability is before God. It's not even before my wife. You know, like my wife, I think next to Jesus is the, is the most scary person that I know. You know, her eyes already just makes me shape up. I love having her right there sitting right in front and watching me because I know that I need to align myself 
simply by the eyes and the stares of my wife. I mean, she's, she's beautiful, lovely, and kind, but at the same time, scary. That means I respect her enough to shape up. And um, even as much as I respect my wife and some others, some prestigious leaders or others who are my bosses, you know, at my school, you know, the president or some other leaders, senior leaders, well, I have to say, it's not them. It's not for them. I'm called into the kingdom as a servant and a steward. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And then in verse 5, he says, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Trust all matters regarding judgment and vindication unto the Lord. Wait for His time. Wait for Him to expose all matters, injustices, evil acts that have been done to you, people ignoring you, neglecting you, brushing you aside, treating you like dirt. All these will be exposed, and they will receive their penalty and judgment for that. Trust yourself in the hands of the Lord, because He's the one who really searches out the inner motives of our hearts, and He will reward us properly in due time. You know, oftentimes we, in the kingdom of God, in various different, different sectors, as servants, as stewards, it is oftentimes because of our lack of patience, I realized, that we stumble and we, we botch up. And being impatient can be equated with lack of trust sometimes. Because if we truly trust the Lord, then we should be patient to the very end. Because we have surrendered into His hands, we can know that He, in His proper time, will acknowledge us and reward us. So let us be assured, everybody, if we are faithful and if we, our conscience does not condemn us, then trust the Lord to the very end that our faithfulness will pay off. One day the Lord will say, good and faithful servant, come into my presence. I will reward you. I will honor you. If faithfulness is the first quality of a good steward, then gratitude is the second quality of a steward. Beginning with verse 6 all the way to verse 8, let's read this out loud together. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign. And that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. 
Paul says, Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. The standard of stewardship that he's been talking about, being faithful and trusting in the hand of the Lord, waiting for His time and vindication. This is established for all servants of God across the board. If anybody chooses to debate this, they're in the wrong, he's saying. I don't think he checked necessarily with Apollos, like, Apollos, I'm going to say this. I hope you agree with it. But perhaps he's saying, across the board, this is the standard of stewardship. And in the previous chapter, we've seen him saying, this is the standard of servanthood. Apollos, Paul, Barnabas, or anybody out there, including me, and James and, and John in, in Jerusalem, we must all abide by this standard as servants, as stewards of Christ. Then he says in verse 6b, Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. And this will prevent us from having a sense of competition, pitting one leader over against other, having a party spirit. You see, the problem with the Corinthians was that they identified with their leader type. Some identify with Paul, some identify with Apollos, some identify with Cephas, that is Peter. And from identifying with them and idol-worshipping them, they jump right into this line of thought like, because we identify with them, we must be like them. I'm like Peter. So I'm against you, Pauline, disciples and start looking down at them. I'm like Apollos. And they look at someone like Pauline and Peter's followers and look down upon them. I'm with Paul. And they start looking down on those who are associated with Peter or Apollos. And they were getting puffed up with spiritual pride and arrogance. And later on, chapter 8, 1, he does say, Paul does say, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so they think they got special knowledge, special association, special connection with these leaders. They're in the party, and you're outside of the party. You know, right now, it's Biden administration in America, so like the, the Democrats, oh, they feel like they have an edge over the Republicans, right? And before then, it was the Republicans under Trump. Okay? Goes back and forth. I'm associated with a certain figure, a political leader, and therefore, we are the elite, and they may look down even on the President of the United States. All the Trump advocates, like, Biden, Biden, I do that too sometimes, and I do apologize for that. Like, what are you talking about? You're not, you don't even come to par with that political figure. But I, I talk to him like, he's like, ah, that Biden, how come he's like that? And, oh, Trump, how come he's like that? Then Paul says in verse 
7, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Although these Corinthians were totally immature, bickering, fighting, but because they identified with certain leaders, they elevated themselves and they said, I know somebody. I belong to this group. I know certain things that you don't know. But what Paul is saying is, you guys are just novices, just apprentices. You're at the receiving end of the teaching and the ministry and the grace. And yet you boast as though you've arrived. You own them. You're entitled to them. You see, even in Jesus' days, Jesus criticized the Pharisees because Pharisees thought that they were really the top spiritual elite. But when they compared themselves to Jesus Christ, really, there was no match. Why? Because the Pharisees, every time they spoke something, they referred to some rabbi. Some rabbi, rabbi says. Certain, certain people says. And they tried to authorize themselves. But Jesus comes along, and he establishes himself. But I say unto you, I speak with authority that is inherent, given to me, endowed to me. And so Jesus was able to stand up against the Pharisees who are always like quoting this, this rabbi, that great prophet, this person, that person. I guess the question I'm asking is, before we boast about anything, we need to ask this question, do I really own that? Is it really mine? Have I really integrated that? Has, has that become internalized? Has that become blood and flesh for me? If not, everything is borrowed. Nowadays, there are so many ministers, even seminaries are notorious for plagiarizing. It's not their ideas. It's not their concept. They haven't lived it. They haven't embodied that. But they can go to the internet, download all that. And if you go to the internet, read a commentary, read a great book, somehow you feel like you know, you feel like you are there. And we have to be very careful about that. Not to get puffed up about it. Because we're all indebted to somebody else, somebody else's knowledge or their experiences to empower to us. And so finally, in verse 8b, Paul says sarcastically, you think you are there, you, you're reigning, and you, you have it all together. Well, I really wish you had that. Because then we can reign together. We can be buddy-buddy about this. But it was a sarcasm. You see, the problem with the Corinthians was that they had lost a sense of perspective. They had lost this perspective of how much they owed to Paul, to Apollos, to Peter, and to everybody else. And they themselves became arrogant and ungrateful. And what Paul is saying is they need to humble themselves and become sober-minded, have the right perspective of things, and give thanks and gratitude to those that you are indebted to instead of being arrogant about it. Which leads to the final point about stewardship, and that has with humility. Humility not only to people, you know, who are in humble positions, but humility 
he attributes it to the highest authority in the kingdom. That is the apostolic authority. He himself. He says, this is what I'm going for. Humility. Verses 9 to verse 13. Let's read this out loud together. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored and we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless you. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. Let's go back to verse 9. Paul says, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. And this is an imagery that Paul is very familiar with, and that's why he's using this imagery. And the audience would have been very familiar with. It's the scene, for example, of like the Roman general... He has, a, has conquered his enemies, and now he's making a triumphal entry into Rome, and he is going to be showered with honor by Caesar. And he brings a procession of the captives. That's the enemy kings and nobility and, and the generals. They're all in chains, and they've been enslaved by this great Roman general. And they enter in, in procession. And then they are forced to go into the arena to either fight with the lions or with gladiators, and they will suffer death. This is to show humiliation of the conquered leadership before the side of the home audience. And Paul says, you know where I stand? Not the conquering general, but I am like the slave who is marching in, in chains, being humiliated before others. And he rightly portrays this picture because he's saying, look at how you're humiliating us, us apostles. You guys are the audience in Rome. Going, wow, and you think that you conquered us. No, we haven't been conquered by you. We've been conquered by this great Roman general. And I'm sure later on, Paul refers to that general as none other than Jesus Christ has enslaved them. And therefore, because we have been defeated by Christ, now we are simply slaves of Christ. And he's drawing this picture for them. And so he likens himself to be a figure of disdain and persecution. In verse 10, he says this emphatic statement, we are fools for Christ. How many of you want to be fools for Christ? I don't know. I rarely say I want to be a fool for Christ. I say, I want to be wise in Christ. I want to be victorious in Christ. I want to be at the top above others than be at the tail end. 
I'd rather have a nice home than be homeless in Christ. But Paul says completely the opposite. He makes a comparison between him and his apostolic team in contrast to the Corinthians who haven't even proven themselves. And they have all these uh, so-called super apostles just fluttering about, you know, giving them superficial talks, spectacles, what they see. Maybe they are the prosperity gospel preachers in those days. But Paul says, I will show you what an apostle is like. And he presents this catalog of suffering. And not only here, but he presents elsewhere in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And in this short catalog, he says in verse 11 to 13a, To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. It's completely a picture to what we see today of prestigious leaders, leaders at the top. I don't know of too many leaders like that. Even I, I, I as an intermediate level leadership, I have a hard time identifying with this. If possible, I, I want to be fed and I don't want to go thirsty. I want to have, have some clothes on my back, shelter on my head. I want to be treated with respect. I don't want to be homeless. I want other people to work for me. I want people to bless me instead of curse me. I want to be honored instead of persecuted. I want to be praised instead of slandered. All the opposite things that Paul is mentioning here. So Paul is right now presenting his apostleship in terms of the worst scenario description. And then he says this. This is the clincher. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. Wow, what kind of talk is that? But it is exactly such experiences of self-sacrifice, suffering, and persecution, misunderstanding, and disdainment. These would establish his apostolic credential. See the other so-called super apostles, and I might even say Gnostic apostles, those people who spiritualize their authority and experiences. And we will study about that because they were the source behind the Corinthian church being spoiled. Instead of looking onto well-established leaders like Paul, Peter, and Apollos, and others. These Corinthians were going after these so-called itinerant ministers, so much like today's evangelists, televangelists, going around giving them sweet talks of all the signs and wonders and miracles and rhetorical talks and all these great expositions of the Bible and so forth. And they were living a glorious life. In today's equivalent, we'll be driving Mercedes-Benz and having a huge mansion with a resort at the side with diamond rings and gold watch and parading with an entourage. 
It wasn't only in Paul's days. Today we have those kind of equivalents. And Paul says, I don't associate with any of that. I'm just a slave, a spectacle. In this procession that gives glory to Jesus and Jesus only. We have become the scum of the earth and the garbage of the world. I have become full for Christ. Underline these words, friends. That's what we have to go for. If not, I think we'll be always in a position of compromise for convenience, comfort, and luxury. And we will not know how to be of the caliber in the likeness of the apostle, like Apostle Paul. Because for Paul, his apostolic authority is based upon this kind of lifestyle. Amen? So once again, I know that we started from the very uh, meek and very base level of a servant or maybe even a slave of Christ. And we're now a responsible steward and go all the way to the apostolic authority. But even an apostle, maybe because he is an apostle, he has to be at the lowest. But today, higher you become, more promoted you become, your life gets better. You're more prosperous. You're elevated up. No wonder people idolize you. But Apostle Paul is different. He says, more high I am exalted, more low I must be willing to go and become even the scum of the earth and the garbage of the world. Fool, for Christ. I like the spirit. I got so much to learn, so much to reflect, so much to repent of when I reflect my life to someone like Apostle Paul. And that's why he is way ahead of so many of us in Christian leadership. We need more models like this, more examples like this in the body of Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.